you will laugh again, especially if you have one or two good friends in your corner. And just like that, in the season one finale of their revival, the ladies of Sex and the City came home to themselves after a long time away. While HBO Max has announced that And Just Like That is its most successful original series ever, season one has also courted plenty of criticism. Viewers have taken issue with Miranda's sudden pivot from aspirational career woman to desperately insecure, cringeworthy fool in love. What do you, what do you mean this isn't gonna work? With the framing of non-binary comedian Che as a self-aggrandizing, ultimately not that funny guide to wokeness. Woke moment! And with the absence of beloved character Samantha Jones, who took with her something of the original's fun edge and most of Sex and the City's sex. All right, no sex for me, indefinitely. But the finale shows Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte returning to themselves and rediscovering their mojos in exciting ways that hint at how much story there is left to discover. Here's our take on how And Just Like That faltered and got its groove back, and how the season tries to land a key message from the original show, that it's the ever-evolving relationship you have with yourself that matters most. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and click the bell to get notified about all our new videos. The biggest absence in And Just Like That has of course been Kim Cattrall's Samantha, as an irreplaceable member in the Fabulous Four friendship and even more so as the primary bringer of edgy exploration and uncensored sexuality that defined Sex and the City for many viewers when it aired. And Just Like That's almost total lack of explicit depictions of the act itself reminds us just how much of that was provided by Samantha, who featured in over 40% of the original sex scenes, voiced a lot of its profanity, and was shown with over double the number of on-screen sexual partners each of the other ladies had. How many sexual partners have you had? I'm counting. Um, this year? In the revival, the other three characters are having even less sex than before. And when Charlotte reveals she and Harry still do have a sex life, Miranda jokes about her shock so many times it's impossible for Charlotte to get any meaningful response. You still blow Harry? Is it his birthday? No. And yes, I still blow Harry. Now, do you guys have that out of your system so that I can talk about my problem? And just like that doesn't even really try to use any of its new characters to provide the unfiltered sexual observation that was a key aspect of the original formula. Not only does this remove what once came across as edgy about Sex in the City, but it also takes away a key aspect of the writing's connective tissue. If you look back at the original Sex in the City, one of the most impressive things about the show is the way it featured the four women's interwoven storylines, all held together with a shared theme or question. Take season three, episode six, titled Are We Sluts? After the main question, Carrie asks herself for her weekly column. But how many men is too many men? Are we simply romantically challenged or are we sluts? The episode explores this question from different angles through four mirroring situations. Carrie is surprised in her promising new relationship with Aiden because he wants to wait to have sex. Charlotte gets called a whore as part of dirty talk. Samantha's neighbors are angry her late night lover accidentally let in a burglar and Miranda finds out she has an STD. I had to make a list of all the guys I've slept with and uh, it's not short. And in the end of an episode, the intersection of all these plots offers Carrie a multi-sided answer to her question. Miranda's plot underlines that making a woman feel ashamed of her number is a silly double standard. Note, 
Men who have had a lot of sexual partners are not called sluts. And Samantha's plot reveals that judging anyone as a slut is a sign of a stuffy neighborhood. They're a bunch of dried up old farts who haven't had sex since Eisenhower, and I remind them of what they can't have. It might be time to move. But on the other end of the spectrum, Charlotte's compulsively dirty-talking partner has some unexplored psychological issues that make him not the right match for her, and Carrie discovers that there can be something special about not having sex right away. For the first time in a long time, I was nervous. Aiden and I were going to sleep together, and it was going to mean something. Without the dating and sexual exploits helping each episode to come together around a clearly defined theme laid out in Carrie's voiceover about whatever she couldn't help but wonder that week, and just like that, doesn't cohere with the same resonance. Before the show, many speculated as to who would replace Samantha as the fourth main character on the show. Every outfit on Sex and the City creators Lauren Garoni and Chelsea Fairless have said Anthony is the closest to filling the irreplaceable seat. With Fairless saying Anthony has a Samantha-esque perspective. She would be the one cracking the jokes about how politically correct everyone suddenly is. I don't know if they're Jewish, but they're all cut, so close enough. Others see Samantha in Carrie's new best friend, Seema, who has Miss Jones's unfiltered conversation, love of men, unapologetic ego, and tendency to flaunt her connections. I can't remember the last time I waited in line. You? To get my vaccine. Oh, honey, I wish you knew me then. I got mine before the question. And she finally brings a little bit of sex to the show when she meets a new man. But whereas Samantha relished not being tied down, Seema's single because she hasn't found the one. Her desire for a long-term forever romance makes her much more of a carry. I really thought 53 would be the year I meet my guy. The most direct Samantha stand-in this season is really Che Diaz, Carrie's boss and Miranda's new love interest. Che shares Samantha's unapologetic promiscuity. And you hooked up with a friend of ours, Melvin, Melvin DeGaio, in Buffalo. Mm. And you slept with another friend of ours, Aubrey, in the Twin Cities. And self-assurance bordering on narcissism. This has been underlined by the popular meme making fun of Che Diaz, announcing themselves with their full name. Hey, it's Che Diaz. And in the finale, when Che tells Miranda they're moving to L.A. via a public song. What's happening? A move that even love-struck Miranda has to acknowledge is off-putting. Or I would have told you privately. And yet you had time to put together a band and a song and practice. What can I say? I'm a narcissist. But while in theory, Chase sounds like an interesting way to bring Samantha's energy into new places, the character's execution can be unsatisfying, as evidenced by the plethora of weekly memes and tweets complaining about Che. We hear that Che sleeps with a lot of people, but we don't see their exploits, except with Miranda. And even after Che warns Miranda they're not into anything traditional, they still seem fine with acting like it's more or less a monogamous relationship. More centrally, Che is forced to take on the tiresome task of being the main character's guide, educating all the ladies in contemporary correctness, inclusion, and wokeness. Woke moment! Sexual expression of any kind should always be discussed and consented to by all parties involved. It's one of the reasons why, despite all the other characters constantly laughing at Che's slightest utterance, Don't worry, I'm not going to subject you to my stand-up. This supposedly hilarious comedian doesn't get to voice much actually funny material. Meanwhile, Samantha was always the most incorrect one, and it was the things she said that were wrong, or the things she did that might make others uncomfortable, that often made her provocative. And just like that explanation that Samantha turned her back on the lady's friendship for relatively petty reasons doesn't do justice to her friend's forever personality. Don't you want to judge me just a little bit? Not my style. 
Still, what the show does right about Samantha is not to simply forget about her, erase her from the picture, or truly write in a new Samantha. Executive producer Michael Patrick King confirmed they're not expecting Kim Cattrall to ever come back, and even said that door's not open after Cattrall liked unflattering tweets about the show. Yet King said it was important emotionally for fans to know what happened to Samantha and work through the loss of her. The season spends a significant amount of screen time on Carrie thinking about or texting Samantha, even in climactic parts of the finale, driving home that Carrie's longtime friend can't be replaced in her heart or in ours, and that it's important to honor these relationships in our lives, rather than trying to simply cut them out or forget about them if they go south. In addition to the absences of Big, Samantha, and due to the death of Willie Garson, Stanford, the other major loss in And Just Like That is Miranda, or at least the Miranda we used to know. We argued in our Miranda video that she was Sex in the City's most aspirational character, thanks to her unabashed independence, ambition, and refreshing no-bullshit attitude. But on And Just Like That, middle-aged Miranda has become a shell of her former self, deeply anxious and uncertain. These, these feelings I have for you, these giant, giant feelings, I, I feel like you have them too, but maybe you don't. So, am I crazy? It's long been posited online that Miranda should be queer, and the actor who plays her, Cynthia Nixon, is married to a woman, but the way the show chose to have this play out has earned its fair share of criticism. King has suggested that viewers' upset over Miranda and Che stems from viewers being Team Steve, or more fundamentally, feeling challenged by Miranda not accepting typical settled married life as enough. Ditch married life, Miranda. Ditch life. But the more fundamental problem is that as Miranda undergoes this major life change, she seems to have lost all of the self-assurance, boldness, and wry intellectual attitude that always made her her. And while King calls Che Miranda's liberator, this burgeoning relationship also seems to bring out Miranda's most insecure self. Like when she surprises Che at home with cookies, is gently rebuffed, and then runs down the stairs, spiraling about how stupid she is for this spontaneous gesture. I, I, I shouldn't have come so stupid. Who am I? Meg Ryan? Miranda's needy, cringy antics also plant the uncomfortable question, what does Che actually see in her? It's hard to imagine viewers having this thought on the original show, when Miranda, as the high-powered and upfront lawyer, modeled an empowering and very magnetic, this is who I am, take it or leave it mentality. I drink coffee and have sex and buy pies and enjoy battery-operated devices. If you can't deal with that, I will find another housekeeper who can. Ironically, it would have made a lot more sense for Che to be interested in Miranda if Miranda were her old self. Instead, though, her storyline, which may be described in uplifting rom-com terms by Miranda herself, I'm in a rom-com, Carrie, feels like a downer, where we see a middle-aged woman flailing desperately in her search for love. Are you gonna answer it? No. I mean, I want to, but I'm not. I've been too available lately. Oh, so you're doing the rules now? It also sets up an awkward power imbalance where the highly sought-after Che holds all the cards, without us really understanding what Miranda is contributing to Che's life. The same is true in Miranda's friendship with her professor, Naya Wallace, who pretty quickly treats Miranda as her close friend and confidant, despite Miranda's off-putting behavior in their first meeting. Hey, hey, hey. That's where the professor sits. I am the professor. You're the professor? Realism and cynicism were once Miranda's defining qualities, and she was quick to call out her friends for seeing their love lives through rose-colored glasses. You're living in a fantasy! 
but she's now the one who's dreamy to a fault. It's possible that this uncharacteristically jittery behavior is because Miranda is overwhelmed by intense feelings of love and lust she hasn't really experienced to this degree before. And so this change in her could be a good thing, but Miranda's journey of self-discovery and reclaiming her sexuality feels less fun than it should have been. Fairless points out that if the show wanted to celebrate Miranda as more gender non-conforming, they also could have been more radical in her fashion, since this has always been a major form of joyful self-expression in Sex in the City. Fairless says it's especially insane given the fact that Balenciaga has really helped to elevate and glamorize that look that she had. The short haircut, the big boxy suits, that minimalist androgyny. first season finale of And Just Like That is all about return, as the characters symbolically find themselves again. Viewers may have been shocked that And Just Like That wastes no time in killing off Carrie's longtime romantic interest, Mr. Big, in its very first episode, but according to King, Carrie's story was to test the thesis that she says in the voiceover at the end of the series. But the most exciting, challenging, and significant relationship of all is the one you have with yourself. King went on, I always wanted to test Carrie's relationship with herself, to see if that was literally something that could stand the test of a great tragedy. It always struck some viewers as a little strange that that monologue King's referring to about putting the self-relationship first is interrupted by a call from her man. Throughout Sex in the City, we never actually get to see if she can put this wisdom of self-love into practice because she's never free of her hang-up on Mr. Big. But the irony of the series has long been that while Carrie's always been in love with Big, she's rarely actually with him in a stable partnership free of major conflicts. In And Just Like That, it's only after Big's gone that we reconnect again with the familiar Carrie we know and love, the one who's mostly on her own. And to at last fully embrace her relationship with herself, she has to accept what is her true final breakup with Big. Death. The ultimate breakup. Dude, that's a t-shirt. Hmm. Yeah. So clearly, I win worst breakup ever. According to King, wanting big has always been the major engine of Carrie's narrative. Quote, the interesting thing about Carrie is Carrie's always been grieving Mr. Big in some way or another. On Sex and the City, she was always feeling the loss of him in her life when she couldn't have him, and now he's gone. So the DNA is tragic and more finite and more real. This is really the arc of the first season, which ends with Carrie scattering Big's ashes in exactly the place where they had their ultimate rom-com moment coming together at the end of the original series. Simultaneously, Carrie returns to herself as a creative when she concludes the finale by beginning her own podcast, at last uttering the words that have been missing for 10 episodes. This is Sex in the City. Earlier in the series, Carrie's trying to prove she can be hip and woke on a comedy podcast that's speaking flippantly and graphically about sex. Today turned kind of raunchy. Well, that's where it goes sometimes, and you need to go with it or the trolls will label you the uptight cisgender female married lady. But while she eventually manages to land her zingers and of course has always had the iconic wordplay, Carrie has never really been primarily about humor or sex. Her central concern has always been the search for love. I am someone who is looking for love. Real love. And when her producer Franklin tells her that she shines most in openly discussing relationship trials. You're so good when people call in about that relationship stuff. This feels like the show returning to a deeper understanding of what it always really was, a guide to understanding the emotional life of relationships, be they romances, friendships, or self-love. 
After she concludes that she's received messages from Big's ghost via her lamp and her dreams, Carrie surprises herself with the realization that she's ready to start a new chapter of dating. And Carrie's final episode includes two very different kisses. The first, with widower and teacher of the year, Peter, is lackluster. In part, Carrie admits, because he asks her permission. He asked permission for the kiss, which I understand, but, you know, contract for a kiss. She worries whether in today's culture of correctness it's even possible to rediscover the magic of romantic spontaneity, but in the episode's final moments, her second kiss shows that it's indeed very possible to be consensual and spontaneous when she's taken by surprise by her developing feelings with Franklin, and they're organically drawn together. And just like that. Mirroring this plot, Charlotte, thanks to some crucial mom advice from her new best friend Lisa Todd Wexley, or LTW, understands the need to recognize herself and all the excellent work she puts in as a stay-at-home mom. I have watched you take care of every single person in your world every single day. So when her child Rock refuses to go through with their they mitzvah, Charlotte steps in to get bot mitzvahed herself and enjoy the amazing event she planned. Someone is going out there and getting they mitzvahed today. Of all the characters, Charlotte has retained herself the most. The perfectionist Upper East Side mom feels pretty true to how we'd always imagined she'd be in this role. That's a good sign, things are moving forward. I love that you're still that girl. And like in the original show, ever-traditional Charlotte is challenged by a world that keeps moving forward. But in this case, since those challenges come from her kids, she doesn't have the option of rejecting what makes her uncomfortable, as she could when a date pushed her boundaries. She has to fully accept her kids as they are. I love that you feel comfortable in your body, and I am not trying to shame you. A major challenge for Charlotte that she ultimately handles by bringing her signature grace, nurturing, and love. And in the finale, we at last get to see even Miranda starting to return to herself. In the episode, Miranda's trademark skepticism comes back when she bluntly challenges Carrie's beliefs about the afterlife. Heaven? Seriously? What, are you saying there's no heaven? Are you saying there is? And when she decides to take the leap to follow Che to LA, despite the disapproval of those around her, this on the surface sounds like another drastic departure from her former self. But even if putting love over career is a new choice for her, doubling down on her choice and confidently sticking with her beliefs when others object is classic Miranda. Matching this recovery of her boldness, Miranda brings back her signature red locks. What happened to all the gray pride? <laughs> it's still there. I just felt like changing it up again. While in principle she wants to stand up for going gray gracefully. I just think the gray ages you. No, you think the gray ages you. Returning to her red, fiery self is true to following her instincts in this moment. So perhaps Miranda's arc this season is someone who's made themselves unhappy by worrying about everything they're supposed to do, finally getting in touch with what they really feel like doing without caring about what others think. This puts Miranda back in aspirational territory after all. That's not to say she's necessarily making the wisest choice to follow Che to LA, Carrie objecting to the extremely un-Miranda move of giving up her competitive internship at Human Rights Watch to follow Che. What are you gonna do in LA all day? Sit in an audience and laugh? Is a clear callback to the original show when Miranda was opposed to Carrie moving to Paris with the Russian. What are you gonna do over there without your job? Eat croissant? And there are some red flags in Miranda's and Che's relationship. You're not my girlfriend, and we're not dating. 
We're not. N what are we doing? But it feels like following her heart is what Miranda needs to do right now to evolve into the new her with the old Miranda's self-assurance. Seeing the characters more fully formed again in the finale, it's hard not to wish that the sometimes awkward and bleak season had started here, but it was as if the reboot needed to take certain steps to find its way back to itself, just as the ladies do. It needed to mourn two key pieces of the original formula and also make sense of how these women, entering new phases of life in a very different world, could find healthy ways to evolve without losing themselves. While the season was critically panned, HBO made a point of confirming that viewership has been great, suggesting perhaps that dramatic quality isn't always the most important thing we want out of this or any show. As Vogue's Michelle Ruiz puts it, it makes me think about how we define good. A lot of people I know think and just like that is bad, but they still watch it and can't stop talking about it. Is it that bad if it has this effect on us? Perhaps what Sex and the City means to us most of all is a chance to stay connected to these characters, to track their bonds with each other, with themselves, and with us, as they've grown into almost people in our lives over the years. I'm rooting for you too because I could hear, in the time I was peeing, how strong your bond is. And just like that's first season has been dominated by themes of death and loss, but the finale centers growth. Our little girl is a woman <laughs> Earlier in the season, Miranda compares herself to a dead person. It was like two dead people trying to get her on, like zombie sex. So her story is one of coming back to life, as symbolized by her hair transition from gray to vibrant red. As King put it, life came at her, just the way death came at Carrie. The story underlines that personal evolution doesn't stop at a certain age. It's a process that continues our entire lives, and far from the future being set in stone, it's something that we get to write ourselves. The future's unwritten. This is The Take on your favorite movie shows and culture. Subscribe so you can watch all of our videos.